Welcome to the Rising Sea Voices podcast on the American Shoreline Podcast Network. My name is Felicia Meta Schult, and I will be your podcast host. I'm excited to let you know more about this new podcast on ASPN. But first, I would like to offer a land acknowledgement. I live and work in Vancouver, Washington. This land has been cared for and called home by the Chinook Indian Nation, the Cowlitz Indian Tribe, and the Chinookan, Tainapam, and Kikitat peoples from time immemorial. In the 1800s, the Tainapam Indians were relocated to the Cowlitz Reservation, where the descendants still live today, while many of the present-day descendants of the Kikitat people are part of the Yakama Nation. The land where I live holds great historical, spiritual, and personal significance for its original stewards. However, there is still no federal acknowledgement of the Chinook as an Indian tribe, and the Carlos Indian tribe had to wait until 2000 to be officially recognized by the federal government. I recognize and continually support and advocate for the sovereignty of the native nations in this territory and beyond. Despite centuries of colonial theft and violence, this is still indigenous land. It will always be indigenous land. Indigenous people are not relics of the past, and their talents and knowledge are worth celebrating. The goal of the Rising Sea Voices podcast is to share the research and perspectives of the new generation of coastal, estuarine, and ocean scientists and engineers. The voices you will hear are the ones of current or recent undergraduate and graduate students and early careers professionals, such as fellows, postdocs, and assistant professors. This podcast will help open the door to the intricate and exciting world of academic research that is often confined to journals, conferences, and meeting rooms available to a select few. Each month, I will have a new guest. They will share with us their personal and professional story, their research and its applicability, their challenges and successes, and their vision for the future of their discipline in the ocean. Racing the Voices podcast also wants to emphasize that coastal, estuarine, and ocean research is for everyone and needs to include diverse voices and perspectives. The podcast wants to amplify racialized and marginalized voices and inspire current and future students to join these exciting fields of research. I hope that my guests will benefit from their participation in an episode as they will have the opportunity to practice their science communication skills, share their work, and expand their academic and professional network. Rising Sea Voices wants to listen to and share everyone's story, no matter their race, ethnicity, sex, gender identity and expression, age, sexual orientation, socioeconomic background, disability, country of origin, religion, or lack thereof. Science is for everyone. We all have valuable perspectives to share, and we are all united by our love for land and ocean. I will tell you briefly a little about me before we listen to my first guest. As you may have noticed from my accent, I am French. I am from a small Mediterranean island called Corsica. The marine world, which I had the chance to dive in at a young age, always fascinated me. After graduating from high school, I wanted to explore the world outside my island, so I went to study to the United States on another island, Oahu in Hawaii, where I studied oceanography. I then went to Rhode Island to study marine affairs. And for the past decade, I have called Washington State home where I studied environmental and natural resource sciences. Since I received my PhD, I have been a Washington Sea Grant Hirschman Fellow, and I am now an Oregon Sea Grant Resilience Fellow. My path has not been linear. It has had its challenges, opportunities, and successes. I had to learn to adapt and be resourceful along the way, and I had the chance to have a fantastic support system, especially when I was diagnosed with bone cancer. Enough about me. Let's listen now to my first guest on the Rising Sea Voices podcast. I hope you will enjoy this episode, and if you do, please subscribe to the American Shoreline Podcast Network. The American Shoreline Podcast Network and CoastalNewsToday.com are brought to you by LJA Engineering. With 28 offices along the Gulf Coast, the folks at LJA Engineering are at the top of the craft in the areas of coastal restoration, coastal infrastructure, rivers and channels, numerical modeling, disaster recovery, and design and construction oversight. Be sure to check out their brand new Coastal Resilience Department, headed up by ASPN's own Peter Ravella. Find them at lja.com. Be sure to subscribe to the Coastal News Today Daily Blast newsletter at coastalnewstoday.com for daily updates on the events and news that shape the coastal discussion. 
Want to support the discussion and promote your company? We have sponsorship packages available now. Email me to learn more at chloe at coastalnewstoday.com. That's C-H-L-O-E at coastalnewstoday.com. Hope to hear from you and enjoy the show. Today, our guest is Nick Taylor. Nick is currently an Oregon Sea Grant Natural Resource Policy Fellow. Is working with the Oregon Coastal Management Program. He earned his Juris Doctor from Lewis and Clark Law School in Portland, Oregon, with a certificate in environmental law. And Nick also graduated from Texas A&M University at Galveston with a Bachelor of Science in Marine Biology. Hi, Nick. Thank you for being my first guest on the Rising Sea Voices podcast. How are you doing today? Hi, Felicia. Thanks for having me. I'm doing great. Enjoying the sunshine. <laughs> yeah, which is, you know, rare in Portland, Oregon to have a heat wave and a lot of sun. So <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> so why don't we start off by just, you know, you telling us a little about yourself and how you ended up, you know, doing this, you know, following this path. Yeah, sure. Um, so like you said, I originally got my undergraduate degree from uh, Texas A&M at Galveston with a degree in marine biology. And my original goal was to be a trainer at SeaWorld. Um, and so I worked my way up. <laughs> cool. Yeah, all the way um, to where we were helping do husbandry um, behaviors with the different animals um, within the SeaWorld San Antonio Park. I just realized that I wanted to do a little bit more. Not that they're not helping do conservation work. I just wanted to be more hands-on and in, I guess, doing the habitat rehabilitation work. So I started looking into programs and I found one in Australia. Um, and so I actually applied Ooh. to grad, grad school in Melbourne and Sydney. Um, and I went, as I was going to tour them, I actually had some interviews and different things with the people there. And they let me know that I did not want to go to grad school <laughs> for animal <laughs> um, behavior and for habitat rehabilitation, they explained to me that I wanted to go to law school and that it's a lot easier for American law students to understand the American legal system rather than jumping over to an entirely different um, infrastructure. So um, I immediately got out of my interviews and looked up uh, what, uh, environmental law schools and I found Lewis and Clark, um, which was a dream because I've always wanted to live in the Pacific Northwest. <laughs> and um, I just applied for the LSAT and took it and here we are. Yeah. <laughs> Congrats. Thank you. Yeah, that was great. And then um, from there, just been finding different opportunities to work in um, coastal management and marine spatial planning, whether with nonprofit organizations um, like NRDC or Oceana. Um, and then from there, I, I recognized that I wanted to do a little bit more or had, have the seat in the room to be able to talk through the conservation principles and environmental standards that are out there and the precautionary principle of taking care of our uh, resources before we know um, what the effects would be of a specific authorized activity. Um, and so from there, I have been working with the Oregon Coastal Management Program for about two years now, and it's been a blast. Yeah, no, it's it's quite the it's quite the path. And uh, just to, to go back a little, like you, so you always lived in, in Texas? Um, I guess kind of. I'm originally from Colorado. Um, oh, okay. So I was born and raised and went to high school there. Um, but every summer, I, I, it might just be because of the family, but we always were in Texas. Um, and so my my grandma lived in Seguin, Texas, which is a suburb or a little rural town outside of San Antonio. And I actually asked the local people at the market, what's the lo closest school or like, what's the best school to go to? Because I wanted to be close to my grandma. Mm -hmm. And in hindsight, it should have been UT, Austin, um, because that is closer. But they told me Texas A&M. And from there, it was like seventh grade. I just had my mind set on going to Texas A&M. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I guess I just knew what I wanted in that moment, but yeah. Nice. And did you have any, um, you know, what inspired you to do, like, to be a trainer or to work with marine mammals? Is like, was it just, you know, shows or like just something by, by going to like a, I don't know, SeaWorld or something like that? Yeah, I guess it's kind of a mix of that um, in the fact that Colorado doesn't have any oceans. So um, I felt like this was, SeaWorld was kind of my only exposure at a young age to be able to see these types of animals um, and to see kind of habitat um, rehabilitation and restoration work and conservation work and animal welfare protection. 
Mm -hmm. I just kind of felt like that was where my heart always was. Um, And then just uh, from working through my way up and and the connections at Texas A&M at Galveston, it just made it a lot easier to become a trainer at SeaWorld. Um, So I just followed that dream and recognized after I started to attain it that I I wanted to do a little bit more, not knocking what they do, um, really grateful for the inspiration. And there are a lot of people who are in the marine biology field who can point to SeaWorld as one of the Mm -hmm. main sources of inspiration. I just felt like I wanted to do a little bit more um, after I recognized the um, hierarchy, I guess. Right. And uh, can you tell us a little of, so yeah, so you went to study law, um, how it works? Like, did you have to work on a specific project? Um, do you have to write, you know, a thesis? It's something that is really foreign to me, actually, because I I didn't follow this path. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, well, from what my experience is at Lewis and Clark, I, I think it's a little bit different than other people's law school um, experiences in that the West Coast is not as competitive when it comes to law school as other areas. Um and uh, because law school is different from other grad schools, it's actually, we're graded on a curve. So whoever gets the highest grade on the test is the A, and then we um, grade on that curve. So it is a competition always. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a that's a big difference, I would say, than undergrad or the scientific um, graduate degrees. And then addi- in addition to that, it's very focused on how to interpret law, how to... Um, focus on where the ambiguities may lie. Um, so that way you can, I guess, I don't want to say exploit, but <laughs> exploit <laughs> those, those holes in the, in the law. Um, and so I learned because we have an environmental law program, I did take classes that kind of targeted me towards that area. And so that's how I was able to get my environmental law and natural resources certificate. Um, Mm -hmm. And with that, you take, you know, uh, you have to take a certain amount of environmental classes like environmental law and administrative law, um, learning how the agencies work both at federal and agent or federal and state levels. Um, And then from there, I actually, every law student has to write a capstone, um, which is kind of like your thesis statement um, where you Mm -hmm. just write a persuasive essay um, or, paper that can be published. So my capstone was actually um, comparing Washington's coastal program with Florida's coastal program and Louisiana's coastal program, and specifically their shoreline shoreline erosion uh, policies, um, just because of how sea level rise and climate change are affecting those regions. Um, And so I actually found out a lot. Um, For example, the Washington coastal manager, Washington state has the largest amount of flood insurance policies in the country, um, which like you wouldn't think because of being up here in the Pacific Northwest, but um, it's very helpful because of how many wetlands there are um, and how the rivers flow into those wetlands, which lead to um, sea level rise and shoreline erosion. So that was really interesting. And comparing that to Louisiana, where they're losing a lot of their shoreline each and every year. Um, And so they're actually trying to dredge and fill and, um, kind of build back that shoreline, but each year it's washing away. And so they're trying to figure out where is that material washing away to? Is it harming the environment? Um, And then just kind of like comparing those policies of Louisiana and Washington to see where there might be some learning lessons for each state. And I think the main thing that I figured out is that our state or our country is so, you or the state of Washington is unique, but also the country is unique in its resources and um, while it's important to have like some lessons, like the precautionary principle of protecting our resources prior to any demonstrated activity, um, I feel as though um, there the resources are so unique that you can't take the lessons, if that makes sense. So Louisiana shoreline is so different from Washington shoreline that like the policies and the, um, I guess policies, regulations, um, and other types of activities that take place on the coast are just not the same. So I think that's really interesting. But on top of it, the conflicting uses um, of the coastal zone um, with the local communities, the local fishing ports, um, shipping industry, all that kind of stuff, you have to take that into account when doing coastal planning. And I felt like I got my first taste of that when writing my capstone, which I think helped me in the position that I'm in now. Yeah, for sure. And I wonder after yeah, you're looking at like, you know, how the context is important, but after um, 
guess there are definitely some similarities as well. Like, you know, shunning people and losing their home or like worried about, you know, their livelihood. And maybe even, I don't know, at the federal level, if there is also, you know, related to funding and grants, but can be also some similarities, similarities as well. All that helped you. So then that's a perfect segue to talk about, you know, your fellowship right now. Um, because what is really cool with Oregon Sea Grant is basically offering different kind of fellowships for recent graduates. And I'm actually one as well, but uh, not like Nick, I'm a different uh, kind of fellow. <laughs> but um, Nick, can you tell a little more about your fellowship and what you're doing right now? What kind of research and, uh, and what do you think is going to be you know, uh, helpful for? Sure, yeah. Um, so I'm working with the Oregon Coastal Management Program, um, specifically the Department of Land Conservation and Development. Oregon is a networked um, coastal program, meaning that several agencies have the jurisdiction over the coastal zone and they use it together to manage its resources. Um, and so I've been working with um, other agencies like the Oregon Department of Environmental Quality, which is in charge of water quality, or the Oregon Department of Fish and Wildlife, which is in charge of biological resources and habitat, just to better understand our coastal zone and um, specific activities that could affect those resources that are located within the coastal zone. The project that I've been working on is called a geographic location description. It's a tool in the coastal management program's belt um, that allows the state to review activities outside of its coastal zone for consistency with state enforceable policy. Um, Under the Coastal Zone Management Act, each coastal program um, with the authorization of NOAA is permitted to review activities that take place within its coastal zone automatically, so long as they have an effect, um, reasonably foreseeable effects to state resources. Um, But what I've been looking at is outside of the coastal zone, because as we know, the water is not just at the boundary line, it does flow in between and resources do um, migrate in between the coastal zone and federal waters. Um, And so because of that, we want to make sure that we're classifying and protecting those resources. Um, Here in Oregon, there's a specific area, the Hecata or the Hasita, some people call it, and the Stonewall (laughs) Banks. Um, Both of those areas are very important to biological resources, migratory habitats, um, and economically important species that are um, fished as part of our local fisheries. Um, So we want to make sure that we're protecting those resources, but also understanding the interaction of certain potentially authorized activities such as aquaculture or seabed mining um, or marine renewable energy to those resources. Um, And so what I've been doing is writing up those reasonably foreseeable effects by doing literature reviews, by collecting raw data, by finding scientific models um, and other types of relevant sources of information to make sure that the state has a solid case um, to prove reasonably foreseeable effects. Once we're able to write down all of those effects, um, we're able to submit that to the NOAA Office for Coastal Management, um, and that's the federal agency that oversees all the state coastal programs. They will then um, decide whether or not it is solid or if it needs more work or if it if the reasonably foreseeable effects standard has been met. Um, And from there, then they will either decide to approve it or deny it. So we're in the middle of doing that for both Washington and for Oregon for aquaculture, seabed mining, and offshore seafood processing discharge. Wow, (laughs) that's a lot of work. And uh, just to be um, give some detail to our audience, can you explain also how far the coastal waters are and compared to federal waters? Sure. So as a general rule of thumb, the state's coastal zone goes out to about three nautical miles. There are two states that have larger coastal zones because they were able to prove that the continental shelf reached out further than those three nautical miles. That's Florida Mm -hmm. and Texas. Um, But everyone else has about three nautical miles um, and territories are open to have their own coastal programs as well. It's just not admitted in the Coastal Zone Management Act. They have their own special statutes that allow that state what coastal zones they have. Um, So Guam, Puerto Rico and other U.S. territories. Um, And then from that three nautical mile line out to 200 nautical miles, that is federal waters. Um, And so that is where the U.S. government has full jurisdiction over um, what activities take place. But the coastal zone management allows for the states to kind of 
make sure that they have a seat at the table or are coordinating with those federal agencies and the industries that may be operating out there to make sure that they're consistent with state enforceable policies. Right. And then past that 200 economic or past that 200 nautical mile zone, that becomes international waters. And so that's when the rules are just, there's a, it's not that there aren't any rules. It's just not as strict as what we have in our federal waters or in other countries' waters that they own. Right, because it's really hard, really difficult to monitor. And I guess with new technologies, there are some opportunities there. But uh, yeah, for sure. Yes, definitely. Actually, as part of my work with the seabed mining um, research, there actually is the International Seabed Authority that's looking into seabed mining outside of federal waters because of the, I guess, advancements in technology. It's mo It's pretty likely to happen even further out there. Wow. And uh, regarding this, you know, how it is now for Washington and Oregon waters, federal waters, I mean, you mentioned aquaculture and uh, seabed binding. Um, and I guess we can, um, how developed is it? It is right now. I, I'll break it down into both. So aquaculture, I think, um, it depends on the type of industry that you're looking at. Um, so they have three main types of aquaculture that probably will be developed off the coast will be finfish aquaculture, shellfish aquaculture, and then marine vegetation, so algae or kelp. Um, and so for the shellfish and the vegetation, the biggest, I guess, re for reasonably foreseeable effects are the effects to the spatial use or distribution of the area because of um, shipping lanes and fishing grounds and other types of conflicting uses that may be in the same areas. And we want to make sure that we're uh, advocating or protecting those resources to the best ability that we can or mitigating the effects from the authorization of the activity to the best that we can. Um, and with aquaculture, actually, just adding something uh a little context to it is with the previous administration, there was an executive order, a couple of executive executive orders that went out um, describing the need for development of aquaculture um, out of, uh, off of our national waters. And so, because of that, there are two geographic areas that have been um, pinpointed: uh, one in Southern California and one in the Gulf of Mexico. Um, and so, from there, they will do programmatic environmental impact surveys to ensure that there. Um, to know what the impacts would be of siting those facilities there. Um, and then from there, they'll go ahead and authorize it and then start again in two years with two new areas and starting it over. And that executive order as of this podcast has not been rescinded. Um, so it sounds like that's still our future. Um, with that being said, then we need to have, it's, there's, Coastal zone management, it allows for states to be a part of the process or the coordination either at the beginning of the um, pro, of the authorization of the activity or at the end. And based on my experience and just from listening to my mentors in the program and outside of the program, it's a lot easier to get those concerns mitigated or discussed or um, at least lessened in some way by bringing them up at the beginning. So having this geographic location description for aquaculture will allow the states to begin with that coordination um, with the federal government yeah. automatically. No, that is great. It totally makes sense to try to, you know, address the issues ahead instead of trying to fix issues afterwards. <laughs> totally. Yeah, and it's not an all-encompassing process. Obviously, as we do more research and more technology becomes available, there might be more reasonably reasonably foreseeable effects that the state has not considered. But that's why we try to um, do the literature review and data call and talk with the experts who are familiar with the technologies that are available and that are coming down the pike. So that way we're more prepared. So, um, sorry, getting off topic of the seabed mining thing, but it is relevant. The... Um, Oregon is the only state on the West Coast to have a geographic location description for marine renewable energy. Um, and so because of that, they the state is now undergoing um, a task force at both the federal, state, and local level of discussing the reasonably foreseeable effects or impacts from siting marine renewable energy facilities within um, Oregon's coastal zone and even in federal waters outside of Oregon's coastal zone. 
And because we were able to write that GLD, a lot of the reasonably foreseeable effects have already been discussed and written down. And now um, our program is kind of leading the charge of these are the things that need to be researched or looked into more before citing a facility. Um, so that's been extremely helpful. There's also another way of writing a geographic location description that Rhode Island has, um, where they pinpointed one specific resource that could be affected by the authorization of an activity, specifically in this case, marine renewable energy. Mm -hmm. um, and so they found where the fisheries, like where their specific grounds are, and because the fisheries are an economically important um, industry to the state, they ended up using that as their reasonably foreseeable effects. And the NOAA Office for Coastal Management um, went along with it. That's great for now, um, but if they did want to review a project and have more um, effects considered, they would have to make sure that they have the hard science already backing it up. So that requires a lot more literature review and data gathering on the other end instead of doing it at the beginning with the geographic location description. So it really depends on what the coastal program has available at the time of writing the document. Do they have the resources? Do they have the time? Do they have the capacity? Do they have the data um, to even write down those reasonably foreseeable effects? You can always amend a GLD or a geographic location description, but um, it just makes it a little bit harder if they do deny you um, to go back and submit the same science. You would need more science at that point to prove reasonably foreseeable effects. I see. And what would be some of the foreseeable effects of, um, you know, for Oregon and Washington State related to, you know, the different um, activities you guys are looking at within the GLD? It could be like, you know, aquaculture or seabed mining. That's a great question. Um, I kind of, I stole Rhode Island's uh, mindset when it comes to thinking about the impacts to our resources. They like to split it up into coastal resources and then coastal uses, which I think is really helpful to really make sure that you're checking the boxes of understanding the, the severity of authorization of the authorization of a specific activity. Um, and so with that coastal resources, you know, um, I mean, with aquaculture and seabed mining with the plumes that come, it would be water quality. It could be um, habitat destruction um, or in, uh, messing with migratory corridors for um, endangered species or marine mammal protected species. Um, and so it's thinking through all of those resources, but then thinking about the uses. And so sometimes, like for example, with the resources of fish, you know, it could be salmon because that's already an important resource to the state, but it's also a fishery off of our coast. And so that's also a use. Um, and so those users of the salmon fishery also need to be protected from, or at least advocated for, um, when discussing these uh, the authorization of these activities. Um, what I've noticed, and this is my second year within marine spatial, or third year almost within marine spatial planning, is that um, it probably was a lot easier in the 80s and the 90s to, to have a new industry and put it out there um, because of the marine spatial planning gaps in understanding our coastal zone, in addition to just not as much going on off of the, the coast. Whereas now, because we have more of an idea, it's a lot harder, um, I think, for new industries to jump in um, to that same area because the, there are, most of the zone has already been spoken for um, at, for other industries. Not that they have the full um, authority over it. It's just how do we share it in a way that doesn't impact their livelihoods, um, but also allows these um, industries to develop. Wow, that, yeah, that's really tricky. And and I was wondering when you've been working with uh, GLD and like how involved where, I mean, is the next step going to be also, you know, building meetings, talking with different stakeholders, having their inputs on what they think about that? Um, it can be. Um, when it comes to a geographic location description, it's just mainly to get a seat at the table for the state to even coordinate on the authorization of the activity. It's not to deny the activity. It's not to um, stand in the way or try to stall the measures or anything like that. It's more to just bring up these concerns ahead of time. So that way the federal agency permitting or authorizing the activity can do more research or find um, the information that would allow it to state that there are no reasonably foreseeable effects to state resources um, stemming from the authorization of the activity. Um, 
when you submit a geographic location description on the other end, um, it goes to the NOAA, NOAA Office for Coastal Management. Before you submit it to the NOAA Office for Coastal Management, any federal agency that's impacted by the geographic location description has to be consulted with. And there needs to be some sort of procedure in place for the state to ensure that when there is going to be that coordination that the federal agency is aware of that procedure. Um, so there's a lot, the Coastal Zone Management folk, Coastal Zone Management Act focuses a lot on coordination between federal and state agencies. And that's what this tool is. It's just another way of enhancing that coordination. Um, but once the um, Office for Coastal Management has read over it, they do go through the uh, typical notice and comment rulemaking. Um, it's a shorter period. I believe it's 30 days um, to allow anyone who's impacted. So that would include industry individuals or other federal agencies that may have not been consulted with um, to uh comment on it and discuss it with NOAA's Office for Coastal Management to determine if it should be authorized or if there are certain things that need to be um, adjusted before it can uh, pass all the way. And so then from there, they'll talk with um, those agencies and figure it out. And that's how they, that's how the stakeholders in the industry and um, federal agencies are all a part of that process at the end. But mainly the, the writing of the document is a state coastal program project. Okay. And has um, any of those GLDs been like submitted and like any uh, any activities going to you know happen in the near future in this area? Sure. Um, so as you can recall, I'm also working on offshore seafood processing discharge. Um, and that's been happening off of our coast since before I came. Um, the reason it came onto the state's radar was that in 2016, the EPA um, issued a permit or started a draft permit to allow specific vessels to discharge off of Oregon and Washington's coast. Um, after looking at it, they're discharging in areas that have low dissolved oxygen content already. Um, and so that water is being upwelled onto the shelf, bringing mass hypoxia events, not saying that the discharge material itself is causing it, but it's ex it could be exacerbating it because according to land-based processing facilities, the material that's being discharged into the ocean has high dissolved oxygen um, demand or biological oxygen demand, VOD. And so, um, because of our precautionary principle that we follow, we want to make sure that we're protecting water quality as we learn more, um, which would require, you know, a, a stricter permit than what we have right now. And so last time that we went around with this authorization of the permit, the state of Oregon and the EPA were unable to come to a conclusion or an agreement on the reasonably foreseeable effects and if the permit was consistent with state enforceable policies. And so this geographic location description for offshore seafood processing discharge will mandate that the EPA come to the table and talk with the state to determine how to make sure that the permit is consistent with state enforceable policies. Um, so that's probably the first thing that's coming down the pike for Oregon, at least. Um, you know, I've started writing it for Washington as well, um, but it really depends on how much further they would like to go and how much more information they would like to have. Um, there's a little bit of difference between Oregon and Washington's uh, coastal zones, I'm sure you're aware of, um, but they do have the Olympic National Marine Sanctuary, and then they also have several um, tribal nations that are also on the shelf um, who have um, jurisdiction over certain areas along the shelf still. So, but those areas that they have jurisdiction over um, are affected by hypoxia and ocean acidification as well. So we want to make sure that we're helping them to the best ability that we can too. No, that's, that's great. And it looks like you had your hands full for the past two years. And, uh, and I think also at first it was supposed to be only a one-year fellowship, but they they extended, right? Yeah. Um, so I was working for Oregon's coastal program um, for a year, and then we realized that this offshore seafood processing discharge um, GLD was going to take a lot longer than what we expected, and so um, we were able to find funding for another year. And then Washington, as part of that funding, um, asked if we could help develop geographic location descriptions for them. And um, that's where the seabed mining conversation comes in because there is a lot of interest over on Washington's side um, into seabed mining. And so we want to make sure that we're having, you know, again, being at, at the beginning of the talks rather than at the end. And it actually has gotten to the level 
I mean, to the highest level, that the legislature has signed off a moratorium within their coastal zone of seabed mining, and the governor has signed it. So um, it's already been like something that the state has been able to put a, have a position on before um, any potential politics or um, money come into it. Right. Yeah. Like in a way, like better be safe than sorry. <laughs> definitely. Definitely. Is your fellowship ending soon? Like what is in store for you now? Are you going to continue working on that issue? That's a great question. My fellowship is over on June 30th. Um, and oh, very really soon. Yeah, very soon. I'm still applying for other um, positions, but I would like to stay in coastal management. Um, what I have been working on as just a way of helping other states, potentially if I you know, have to move on to a different type of subject within coastal management, is um, we're producing a guidance document for other states interested in writing geographic location descriptions. Where is the relevant data? Um, when do you need to determine when to craft a GLD? What's the approach that you should be using? Um, how do you draw the polygon or the different, the delineated space that's outside of the state's coastal zone um, to ensure that you are not trying to reach out too far um, with your state enforceable policies, but are still protecting the resources necessary. Um, so we're, we're writing that and we're in the final um, steps of finishing up that document. It should be done by the time I finish my fellowship. So hopefully that will be a good stepping stone and helpful for other states interested in doing um, the same work. I know that, um, who is it? Virginia is interested, Delaware, New Hampshire, other states of uh, Texas has uh, expressed interest in writing geographic location descriptions. Again, just mainly to, to be able to have those conversations with the federal agencies, because right now it's a little bit more difficult, um, especially given the fact that the Coastal Zone Management Act um, is puts a lot of weight on the coordination aspect. Right. No, that is great. That sounds like a, you know, great work. And I hope that you know, everything, you'll have at least a complete draft before you're gone, like, <laughs> because it's coming up soon. But that sounds really great. And so far, what, for your next step in your career, um, like you said, you like to continue to work on those kind of issues in, in the law, but after any, you know, specific idea in mind other than that? Um, I mean, I guess like, are you, are you saying like, what would be a pet project of mine in the future? Yeah. Um, yeah. I know that when it comes to the law, uh, there are different areas or regions of the law where there are treatises, where they discuss a specific statute or um, the constitution or other parts of our law or our legal framework. And they, it's like a, a group of experts in the field who write about their, you know, the, the policies and how they're interpreted in the courts and they provide court decisions and just kind of the general framework of how to analyze those statutes and what are the tests that need to be applied to determine if someone's in violation of that regulation or that statute. The Coastal Zone Management Act does not have one. Um, and I feel like it would be really helpful <laughs> for <laughs> coastal programs and industry individuals and other people, other federal agencies who um, interact with the Coastal Zone Management Act to have that type of treatise and judges who are, you know, I feel like ocean, man ocean and marine spatial planning are kind of fun little projects for them. It's not necessarily something that they see every day. Um, and so this Coastal Zone Management Act treatise, I think, would be really helpful um, to talk with, you know, other experts in the field and other coastal management programs, um, both on the territory level, but and on the state level, because um, Rhode Island is, you know, um, they're the most recent geographic location description to be submitted. And so NOAA really likes um, using them as an example and then using mm -hmm. work as an example too. So this GLD guidance document is probably like a good first step in beginning to have that treatise or beginning to have that understanding of how the Coastal Zone Management Act is applied um, in a court of law and how, you know, the regulations and the statute should be interpreted. Um, I will say that a treatise is not uh, required. Like it's not something that if, even if you supply it to a judge, they don't have to go with what the treatise says. I just think it's a lot help more helpful to have that context because uh, sometimes people don't know necessarily the legislative intent or the history behind um, an act or um, kind of the 
the way that it's in it's applied in practice. And so I think a treatise would be helpful. So I guess that answers your <laughs> that project of the future that I would like to take on. But I believe that will take a lot of time. <laughs> yeah. But no, that's great. And uh, after I encourage your audience to be like, hey, you know, Nick is well experienced, you know, like, <laughs> do you need him to work on such a project? Here he is. That would be great. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And um because we're going toward a little, you know, I guess the end of our interview, um, I wanted to ask you also in your field, like if there are someone you, because you had a chance, you know, to network with people and to know a little more about what others are doing. If there is someone that you, let's say is more like a role model or someone you admire or someone you'd like to meet one day, um, because I think like when we are at different stage in your career, you know, we have different um it's a role model or people really inspire us. So I was just curious about that. Like if there is someone you, you're like, oh, I'd like to be this person, you know, one day, or it's really cool. I'd like to follow this path. Um, I guess I, I would, my inspiration would probably be my mentor or um, someone who I really admire. Um, it's Tanya Haddad. I don't know if you're familiar with her. She's a the data expert for the Oregon Coastal Management Program. Um, but the way that she thinks about the issues um, or how to kind of communicate um, what the state is trying to do is just so unique, but it, it's so powerful. Um, so for example, um, when determining what are the reasonably foreseeable effects of offshore seafood processing discharge, well, you know, there's still some unknowns, but there are some things that we do know. And so she um, prompted me to write down all of the things that we do know and create this causal chain, if you will, of what you know, how the state has made the case for reasonably foreseeable effects. And so that whole causal chain now has been developed with quotations and other sources of data to support those points um, to the point now that we have our analysis of reasonably foreseeable effects. We've talked with um, researchers and um, other sister agencies and NOAA's Office for Coastal Management. Like we've talked to all of them and each of them say, yeah, you've made a really good case. And so I don't think I would have been able to get there without Tanya's expertise and and help. Um, Additionally, I will say that um, for Washington, Terry Swanson, the federal consistency coordinator, and Oregon's federal consistency coordinator, Deanna Caraciolo, sorry, I messed up her last name, Um, but they have both been really helpful in in explaining how the federal consistency review process works. I took you know, environmental law and ocean and coastal law in law school, but we didn't really talk in as much detail as to how the federal consistency review allows for the states to really, I don't want to say flex their muscle, but um, show the the purpose of the Coastal Zone Management Act and bringing those resources to the forefront of the conversation. Um, and they do that every day um, on several different activities, not just the ones that I've been researching. And so I feel like that has been one of the big lessons for me is just learning how to communicate these things in a way that um, communicate or explains that we're all on the same team. You know, for the most part, we all want to protect the resource. um, And then we all want to make sure that you're able to get your livelihood as well, but we have to do it in a environmentally responsible way. Right. And uh, no, that's great what you mentioned, you know, all these people, because it's true for any kind of work we're doing, we, we don't do it alone. Um, like we need others, we need to work together and it's like a, a group effort. So yeah, no, that that's great. Definitely. I really enjoy the, the team work um, and the team building that, that comes with the, the coastal programs up here in Oregon and Washington. I can't speak to the others, but it seems like they have similar um, kind of cultures going on of uh, it's different people within the policy team, whether you have scientists or lawyers or engineers. I mean, just providing those different perspectives is super important because we don't all think the same. And marine spatial planning is so unique compared to other areas that um, we all are taught the main laws and the main um, issues that people discuss, but we're almost all taught a different perspective or a different way to approach it. And so it's really cool when we all are in the same room and you have scientists and lawyers and policy experts and resource managers and just different people who um, have these different walks of life that allow for this, those new perspectives to be heard. I think that's super important. 
Yeah, no, that's great. And even if sometimes there is a return, you know, it comes also with its challenges. <laughs> but definitely, it's it's really important for sure. And um, and talking about perspective, um, what let's say what what is your vision, for example, of the of the development you would like to see related to because it's in your line of work with federal waters. Like, what do you think? Um, for example, could be improved, change, or what? What is your, I don't know, the future you would like to see there? I think um, one of the main things that I will say I would love to see change. And I think we're seeing it right now um, with the newest generation coming into uh, these positions. Is that the before we showed up, the mindset was the solution to pollution is dilution, um, especially when it comes to the ocean. It's so large, it should be able to take up all these different pollutants. Um, I think I would like to be able to see, or I'm already starting to see that that's not the case. And so we need policies, regulations, and different things put in place to start to understand the thresholds or the limits of these waters because they do have them. Um, and so I, I would say probably a development of a framework of how to even analyze water quality because it's so difficult within an ocean environment because of how fluid um, the currents are of the different efficiency rates of like uh, of ocean respiration. You know, at the top, it might respire at a different rate than at the bottom of the ocean. And so understanding those uh, respiration rates are super important as well. So I think funding the science to understand, um, but then also um, tailoring it in a way to where it's not just we're researching just for fun. We're researching to help other programs and natural resource managers and industry professionals um, to better understand our oceans. Because right now there seems to be that disconnect of um, oceanography and how it can assist uh, government agencies with managing coastal resources within the you know coastal zone and outside within federal waters. Yeah, you're totally right. Like we need those connections and bridges and, and exchanges. So definitely uh, we can have all those, you know, perspectives and, you know, ideas and discoveries like that can be put to use and also like having the decision-making level, like saying like it's what we need. So definitely more collaboration at this level. Yeah. Definitely. I think I may be a little biased, but um, the reason why I started, another reason why I wanted to be in this field is that I noticed that there's a disconnection between scientists and lawyers and policymakers of, of how is science um, made, how is science discovered versus how is policy made. And uh, because there's that gap, I feel like we need more people to fill in the blanks for people and to uh, um, kind of connect the dots for everyone of why the science um, and, it, the re and how it always changes and how we need to have some sort of policy framework to allow for those changes once we learn more information. Um, yeah, no, I agree. And I feel like almost like this position would be, you could have the role of so like liaison, but also kind of like translators <laughs> because uh, they all speak different languages as well. So. Definitely. Like, for example, with this geographic location description, the threshold, like I said, within the regulation is reasonably foreseeable effects. Not that it's happening, not that it's, you know, there's a full correlation, but just that, you know, based on the science and what we do know, there are reasonably foreseeable effects. And I felt like scientists don't necessarily understand that threshold because it is a little squishy um, and gray area compared to what they're used to working with. Right. Yeah, no, that's... I don't know. Maybe you could be also that person. <laughs> <laughs> Fingers crossed. <laughs> no, that would be great. And uh, and because we're getting yeah um, close to the interview, before we we finish, do you have any you know final words, something you would like to share that you didn't have a chance to to explain or or shout, shout out to someone? <laughs> Um, I guess I just want to thank everyone who's been so supportive um, of me in this entire journey. Um, it hasn't been easy. I'm sure there have been times where I've been super frustrated <laughs> with, with uh, where we're at in the progress. So I'm super grateful for um, the staff, um, our coastal program manager, Patty Snow, um, our marine affairs coordinator, Andy Lanier, um, Casey Dennehy up in Washington, who's been super helpful in explaining the Washington side of things, Terry Swanson, Brian Lynn, I'm trying to think of everyone, Kerry Kehoe, um, the NOAA OCM help. Um, he's been extremely 
extremely uh, communicative. And anytime I have questions about <laughs> NOAA's regulations or just different things going on on that end of the coastal program, um, he's been super responsive and um, I'm so grateful for this opportunity. Finally, I would like to thank Pew um, because they've been uh, Pew Charitable Trust. They've been uh, helpful in developing the fellowship and um, providing guidance and support wherever they can, um, including that guidance document uh, that we're writing. So thankful to all of those people. And if I'm forgetting you, I'm really sorry. Thank you too. <laughs> <laughs> and it's funny, like some of the people you mentioned also in Washington, I, I know some of them as well because I did a, yeah, Washington, um, Hirschman, Seagrant, oh, Washington, Seagrant, Hirschman Fellowship. <laughs> wow, so, what a small world. <laughs> I know, it is. It's true that I call like a, such a great team. And like you said, we we cannot do any 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 of us work or have those opportunities if we don't have people supporting you, supporting us, encouraging us and having, you know, doing teamwork. And and thank you so much for sharing, you know, um, you know your education, your path, how do you end up, you know, uh, in the Pacific Northwest and you explained so well like your work uh, as a fellow and you know on your on the GLDs and I'm sorry and like you've been amazing also like saying all those you know <laughs> you know acronyms and all that things like really well like GLD and all that everything I'm, I'm yeah so that has been really well explained thank you so much for sharing all that and I'm wishing you the best of luck with what will come next uh, after, you know, the end of June. And hopefully, fingers crossed that everything will be fine. And um, and I'm sure we'll find something. And I hope we'll also stay in touch because we're not too far from each other right now. <laughs> yes. Thank you, Felicia, for this opportunity. When you told me that you wanted to do a podcast, I'm so honored that I got to be one of your first guests. Um, and also just to explain this to other people. Um, I thank you for the platform. Thank you for the opportunity. And like you said, we'll definitely stay in touch. Thank you, Nick.